the 27th of September, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week in the news, actually this week in Room Now, you'll see reports on plumbing and rheumatologists by Sterling West, on exorcisms in clinic by Jack Cush, and of course we cover the CBD position paper from the Arthritis Foundation, NICE, Kind of says nothing. And then what we didn't cover was Kim Kardashian and what she has. We're going to start off with a quote. This is a quote from one of my favorite um, leaders, mentors, and that's Seth Godin. The quote goes, people don't believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They often believe what their friends tell them. And they always believe what they tell themselves. Is this not true in clinic? Again, you tell them, you show them, they don't believe you but yet they believe their friends, the internet, their hairdressers, and of course they believe the story that they have in their head. I think your job maybe is to make you their friend. Then they might believe you. Let's start with a report about ANCA-associated vasculitis, looking specifically at the association of inflammation in such patients and what happens to lipid levels. This is from John Stone, a bunch of colleagues who studied vasculitis, 142 patients with AAV, and they studied their lipid levels. They showed that lipid levels increased when the patient was newly diagnosed with PR3 positive ANCA-associated vasculitis, and they went into remission. So they go into remission, but yet the lipids increase. This was not seen in MPO-positive patients or those who had relapses of their ANCA-associated vasculitis. Overall, there was an association between sed rate levels and lipid levels, actually an inverse association. And can we see this in a lot of conditions? What happens is inflammation suppresses uh, lipid levels. So people have very inflamed joints, their lupus is active, whatever. Before they get treated, their lipid levels may be normal. But then when you treat inflammation, it's very common that you'll see lipid levels rise. And they get back what they normally had before if they didn't have inflammation. The question is, do these powerful inflammatory drugs give them higher lipid levels? No, they don't. We see this especially with IL-6 inhibitors. We see this with the JAK inhibitors. We certainly can see this with the TNF inhibitors. A very interesting study was done uh, using anakinra, a drug you often don't use, in patients with rheumatoid arthritis and type 2 diabetes. Uh, so not type 1 diabetes, where anakinra has been studied and shown, in fact, to work. So 41 patients who had both type 2 diabetes and RA were randomized to either receive anakinra or TNF inhibitor, and the patients were studied over six months. And not surprisingly, they both did very well. Their joints got better, the inflammatory indices got better, their disease activity measures both got better, almost, and again, equally, not significantly different. What was different, however, is what happened to their A1C levels. Patients who were treated with anakinra were more likely to have significant reduction in A1C levels at three months and six months, whereas those treated with TNF inhibitors did not, suggesting, hmm, there might be something there. You might need to use anakinra or IL-1 inhibitors more frequently. I think the most comments I've received in a long time about tweets or news that I put out came from this next report. It's actually a report about systemic sclerosis and whether or not there's an association with cancer. So this come and I got a lot of requ- uh, a lot of comments from both physicians, major leaders, 
patients, it was really surprising. This particular study looked at uh, almost 2,000 patients with systemic sclerosis and looked at um, their overall risk of cancer compared to a normal population, age-matched population. The SIR, the standardized incidence ratio, was 2.15, meaning a two-fold higher risk in systemic sclerosis patients, and that was significant. The confidence intervals were 1.84 to 2.5. Most common cancers seen in systemic sclerosis patients were breast, melanoma, hematologic, and lung cancer. So I don't know that the kind of cancers are any different in patients with systemic sclerosis. It may be that they get more cancer because we don't have a drug to treat them. If we had drugs to treat them, we might normalize their cancer risk by normalizing inflammation. Anyway, I thought this was surprising. And, and, and the other thing that was interesting here was the cancer risk was higher in patients who had antibodies against RNA polymerase 3, um, patients who were on calcium channel blockers, and those who had a history of interstitial lung disease. Something to think about. A nice review comes from the renal literature I put up this week talking about whether or not we should be treating asymptomatic hyperuricemia. I think we all have a policy on this. I think it's generally believed you don't treat asymptomatic hyperuricemia. And this patient, this uh, paper from the renal literature kind of says that, that most nephrologists do not treat asymptomatic hyperuricemia. The point of the paper was they really couldn't find any papers that effectively dealt with this issue. They only found three reports showing that the use of allopurinol or fibuxostat in patients with asymptomatic hyperuricemia, anything over seven, two out of the three suggested benefit, long-term renal benefit. The other one, not so much. But overall, the numbers here are very low, and this is a very common problem. So I think most people that they referenced in the, pa in, in the paper said we wouldn't treat it. I think you might change your mind if there were more data on this. I think you might change your mind if we're talking about a certain kind of patient, someone who's really sick. We might talk, talk differently about this. We're talking about very high uh, asymptomatic hyperuricemia. So 13, 14, would you treat it? Absolutely you would. But would you treat 9? Would you treat 10? My own view is in studying hyperuricemia and gout, uh, I believe uric acid is very toxic. I think it's very toxic to blood vessels and tissues. And now, I, if I see someone who's asymptomatic hyperuricemia and it's more than nine, I'm treating them. If it's eight, if I don't have a good reason to treat them, I'm probably not going to. But again, we need more research in this area. Speaking of research, Novartis put out a press release this week, so preliminary data on what's called the PREVENT trial. This is a trial of secukinumab, the IL-17 inhibitor, in patients not with psoriatic disease, not with ankylosing spondylitis, not axial spondyloarthritis. Yes, it's with that condition called non-radiographic axial spondyloarthropathy. Recently, the FDA approved sertilizumab for that condition. A lot, of, a lot of companies and drugs would like to be used in that condition, thinking, well, it just gets you one more part of the spondyloarthritic spectrum there's not a lot of patients who have this, and I think that uh, some people are uncomfortable with this diagnosis, but they had fairly rigid criteria going into the study. They had to obviously meet spondyloarthritis criteria, not have um, New York uh, criteria for AS, not have clear-cut um, sacred ileitis, but instead either have um, an MRI evidence of that or an elevated CRP that would support the diagnosis. Anyway, their preliminary data, they don't show the numbers, was that there were superior AS, um, ASAS 40 results compared to those on placebo. And the promise is they're going to pre uh, present this data at an upcoming meeting, hopefully at ACR in six weeks' time. 
very interesting report appeared yesterday from the CDC in their MMWR report. They actually looked at opioid use in a lupus cohort. The data comes from the MILES study. It's in, done in Michigan, a lupus cohort from Michigan, where they studied 462 patients and compared them to 190-something patients who did not have lupus and looked at overall use of opioids. And they found lupus patients threefold more likely to be on opioids than non-lupus patients. Now, the numbers here are kind of small, especially in the comparative group. Um, and there's, an, there's an, maybe an issue in Michigan with more opioid use than maybe there is in Connecticut. But nonetheless, they found more in lupus. Specifically, they found that lupus patients who went to the ER were more likely to be the, um, the users, if not abusers, of opioids with a twofold higher risk compared to uh, their comparator group. So we don't think of lupus as a condition that needs uh, narcotics, um, you know, pain, certainly. It happens with serositis and with um, arthritis and with uh, joint damage, maybe with secondary fibromyalgia. But again, those should be treated with anti-inflammatories, simple analgesics, treating secondary fibromyalgia. Why are lupus patients on um, narcotics? I don't know, AVN occasionally, but this seems to me like an extreme problem that needs to be, be paid attention to. Another really interesting study uh, appeared in the literature recently, and this is the, about the use of low-dose IL-2 subcutaneous injections in patients with lupus. And this was patients who had pretty active lupus of all kinds, including patients with nephritis. Um, there was some preliminary data a few years back showing that this could be used safely in patients, IL-2, as an infusion has been given to cancer patients, melanoma patients, high dose therapy was associated with problems, but they're, here they're using low dose therapy. And what they did was they studied a total of 60 patients who had lupus, active lupus, and, and 30 received the low dose IL-2 uh, subcutaneous injections versus placebo injections for 12 weeks. They then followed patients for another 24 weeks after the IL-2 injections stopped. And guess what? At 12 weeks, significantly better SRI4 primary endpoint for most lupus trials these days. SRI4 responses with, on the, in the IL-2 group, 55% versus 30% in placebo. That's significant. Moreover, when they followed these patients for another 12 weeks after they had stopped the IL-2 injections, they continued to maintain, maintain efficacy, 66% versus 37%. Not a lot of difference here as far as adverse events. I think maybe a few more injection site reactions or, or and... Uh, flu-like symptoms and a little bit of fever, but really it was otherwise very well tolerated. It'd be interesting to see if this goes further in clinical trials. Our last report is about persistence of arthritis symptoms in patients who have checkpoint inhibitor-related adverse events. As you know, the patients who get these immune checkpoint inhibitors, ICIs, um, can come down with um, immune-mediated or, or immunologic adverse events, myositis, hypophysitis, thyroiditis, myasthenia gravis, uh, PMR, inflammatory arthritis, you name it. They get a lot of autoimmune features. Uh, not surprising given the biology of this. Well, the Johns Hopkins group, who's done a lot of work on this, a lot of good work on this, did a follow-up of their 60 patients who developed inflammatory arthritis uh, while on an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, they were roughly half male, half uh, women. They were followed for a total of about nine months uh, at presentation that when these, this group presented, they had a mean of six tender joints, six, I'm sorry, six swollen joints. They had a, a median CDI score of 17.5. They had very low rates of seropositivity. 
you know, 1%, 2% rheumatoid factor positivity, 5% CCP, 14% uh, ANA positive. Most of them, if not all of them, had normal SED rates and CRPs. So after the patients had a cessation or a hold on their immune checkpoint inhibitor, uh, active disease remained in up to 75 or 71% uh, three months after. And at six months, half of them still had active inflammatory arthritis. The majority of these patients went on to receive some sort of immunomodulatory therapy, either steroids, the most common, DMARDs, the next most common, biologics, the next most common. Uh, and, and again, most of them seem to respond. The issue here is, given this persistence of inflammatory arthritis, how are we going to manage this? We need guidelines for this. When you ask large, when I ask large groups of rheumatologists how often you see this, everybody puts their up, up their hands. So, you know, at least 70% of the audience has seen a case or two of this. So this is something that uh, as, these, as these drugs, there's five or six of them now in the marketplace, and they're being used in a lot of problematic cancers beyond melanoma. As they get wider use, we'll be seeing more of these patients going forward. That's it for this week on the podcast and the Week in Review. Go to the website to check out these citations, links, and you can read, read up more on this. We'll talk to you next week.